Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. I realize I'm a week late for this, but Groundhog Day did actually inspire me to cover an interesting topic, the role of hypothermia in surgery. However, with Valentine's Day coming up, maybe the timing is apt as we will cover operations on the heart as well. Dr. Bill Bigelow, a Canadian cardiac surgeon, was a pioneer in the field of hypothermia to allow for open heart surgery, a breakthrough in the age before heart-lung bypass. And he studied hypothermia in a number of animal models, including groundhogs. We'll cover that story and more about his work, as well as take a look at the history of Groundhog Day in this episode of Legends of Surgery. So let's begin with Wilfred Gordon Bigelow. Not to be confused with Henry Jacob Bigelow, an American surgeon at Harvard best known for his article, Insensibility During Surgical Operations Produced by Inhalation, meaning of ether, published in 1846 in the New England Journal of Medicine. See episode 2 for further details. FYI, the ether dome at Mass General is also called the Bigelow Amphitheater. Now, the Bigelow we're interested in, Wilfred Gordon, was born in 1913 in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada. He went to medical school at the University of Toronto, and this is where we get the first foreshadowing of his later work in hypothermia. Here's a quote from Bigelow himself, quote, my interest in hypothermia was aroused in 1941 when, as a resident surgeon at the Toronto General Hospital, I was in charge of a young man from the Canadian North Woods with frostbite in his fingers that had progressed to gangrene, end quote. In his book, Begelow describes an interesting anecdote about this case. The patient asked for the amputated digits back, as according to his beliefs, they had to be buried, pointing down, in loose soil with nothing pressing on them to avoid post-amputation pain. Bigelow obliged him. Following this experience, he realized that there was little research done on frostbite and he was going to pursue it further. But this line of study would be put on hold as Bigelow was sent overseas to World War II. Dr. Bigelow began as a captain in the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps, first serving with the Field Transfusion Unit, and then working as a battle surgeon with the 6th Canadian Casualty Clearing Station, which is the Canadian equivalent of the American MASH, or Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. He was stationed in England and northwestern Europe and treated many soldiers with frostbitten limbs, further directing him to his future area of study. Now, while overseas, Bigelow worked with the British War Office to build a cooling cabinet that he had designed to preserve wounded limbs with damaged circulation until surgery was available, but it wasn't completed until around VE Day, which stands for Victory in Europe, and so it wouldn't get tested in the field. After returning to Toronto and completing his surgical training after the war, Dr. Bigelow took a research fellow position at Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1946-47, to there, he trained under Dr. Alfred Blaylock, so see podcast 32, just a few years after his first blue baby operation, and under Dr. Richard Bing, a famous cardiologist and researcher who actually worked with Alexis Carell and Charles Lindbergh at the Rockefeller Center on their machine perfusion for preserving organs for transplantation, so see podcast 20. A lot of connections being made here. It was while watching Blaylock and others operate on hearts that were beating and full of blood the Bigelow realized that most heart conditions could not be corrected without stopping the heart, opening it, and operating in a bloodless field under direct vision. Remember, at the time, very few heart conditions could be treated surgically, and most patients were doomed to very poor outcomes. Here is Bigelow describing his eureka moment, quote, One night I woke with a simple solution to the problem, and one that did not require pumps and tubes. Cool the whole body, reduce the oxygen requirements, interrupt the circulation, and open the heart, end quote. So before we get to that next phase, I want to take a moment and talk about the saying, Eureka. It's used to describe a sudden, unexpected realization of a solution to a problem, and it comes from an ancient Greek word meaning, I have found it. 
and is credited to the scholar Archimedes. He was trying to figure out how to calculate the volume of an irregularly shaped object, something you can't calculate just by measuring it. While taking a bath, Archimedes realized the water level went up. The volume of water displaced by his body must equal the volume of his body, or at least the part submerged in water. The best part of the story is that, after shouting Eureka, Archimedes was so excited to share his discovery that he ran through the streets of Syracuse, the Greek one, not the one in New York State, completely naked. Anyways, after working at Johns Hopkins, Bigelow returned to Toronto and converted an old storage room in the basement of the Banting Institute, see Podcast 28 on Banting and other Nobel Prize winning surgeons, to begin his research on hypothermia, which culminated in the first successful application of the technique on humans in 1953, but we'll get back to that. The amazing thing was that this concept flew in the face of conventional surgical thinking at the time, which stated that cooling in a patient after surgery or severe trauma would cause shock and was to be avoided at all costs. Bigelow started his experiments working with dogs. Initially, they would shiver as they got colder, which increased their metabolism. But once he figured out how to control the shivering by giving muscle relaxants, Bigelow and his collaborators showed that there was a linear relationship between temperature and metabolism. In other words, as you cooled down the patient, their metabolic needs reduced, which means that their organs could go without a blood supply longer without any damage being done. The next phase was to ensure that hypothermia did not cause brain damage, so they studied monkeys using EEGs and behavior studies to assess them. Bigelow was able to demonstrate that there was no evidence of brain damage with hypothermia. By 1949, they were able to show that reducing body temperature to 20 degrees, that's Celsius, not Fahrenheit, my apologies to the American listeners, would allow 20 minutes of interrupted circulation, time to operate on the heart, without any negative side effects. Bigelow presented his findings on hypothermia in 1950 to the American Surgical Association meeting and stunned his audience with a short film demonstrating his surgical technique on a dog whose temperature was lowered to 20 degrees, its circulation interrupted, and heart opened cleanly. The first human application of hypothermia in open-heart surgery actually occurred at the University of Minnesota in 1952 by Dr. John F. Lewis, in which he closed an atrial septal defect, or a hole in between the two atria or upper chambers of the heart, in a five-year-old girl. The procedure consisted of wrapping the anesthetized patient in refrigerated blankets until they got her core temperature down to 20 degrees Celsius. Blood flow to and from the heart were blocked, the surgery was performed, and then the patient was reheated in warm water, about 45 degrees, until the core temperature went up to 36 degrees. This was the first ever successful operation within the open human heart under direct visualization. Now Lewis did this on 29 more patients and had only three deaths. The technique of hypothermia only allowed a brief window of time to operate in, measured in minutes, which limited what types of problems could be fixed surgically. Bigelow discovered in 1950 that hibernating animals had remarkable cold tolerance and wanted to figure out a way to safely cool humans to so-called deep hypothermia, meaning temperatures of only 5 to 10 degrees Celsius, which would permit an open heart operation of 1 to 2 hours, greatly expanding the surgical options. Now, amazingly, hibernating groundhogs have body temperatures as low as 3 to 4 degrees, with a heart rate of only 3 to 10 beats per minute and a respiratory or breathing rate of only 1 to 2 breaths per minute. In the lab, they can survive total circulatory arrest for 2 hours, meaning their blood is not pumping, without suffering any brain damage. Now, initially attempting, with some success, to dig up or drown out the hibernating groundhogs in the farmlands of southern Ontario for study, Bigelow established an outdoor groundhog colony in Collingwood, Ontario, a hilly forested area north of Toronto, which happened to be near his ski cabin. Now, this farm 
which is thought to be the only of its kind in the world, would at times house as many as 400 groundhogs, which the research fellows would dig up from their winter slumber in order to study them. So let's take a minute now to talk about the history of Groundhog Day. Uh, the basic idea is that on February 2nd, if a groundhog comes out of its burrow and sees its shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. But if he doesn't see his shadow, spring is fast approaching. As far as I can tell, it is a predominantly North American tradition, but if I'm wrong, those of you listening around the world, please send me a message by tweet or email. The first North American Groundhog Day was in 1888 in Puxitani, Pennsylvania, which is also the town portrayed in the movie Groundhog Day, and came to Canada in 1956 in Wyarton, Ontario, where the groundhog's name is Wyarton Willie, and it's Puxitani Phil in the U.S. And there are others around North America. Interestingly, the Canadian groundhogs, at least, are right about 37% of the time which is statistically worse than a coin flip. But the tradition dates much further back than this. Around this time of year, there was a pagan Celtic holiday called Imbolc, which marked a seasonal turning point from winter to spring, as a midpoint between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. There was a festival associated with the goddess Bridget, later turned into St. Bridget by the Catholic Church, which focused on the hearth and home with fire and purification playing an important role. Torches were carried over the fields in a procession, praying to the goddess to purify the ground before planting, and representing the return of the warmth and light of the sun. Now, early Christians adopted this celebration time for Candlemas, a festival that dates back to the 4th century in the Common Era, and represents the day that Mary and Joseph presented the baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this festival is associated with lighting candles, replacing the pagan torches, to brighten the dark winter. Later on, early Europeans began enlisting hedgehogs to help predict future weather, as the animals typically came out of hibernation around this time in early February. German settlers to Pennsylvania brought this tradition and changed the hedgehog to the native groundhog, and so Groundhog Day was born. So back to Bigelow and his groundhogs. His study of the hibernating animals lasted for 10 years. After studying their physiology and experimenting with surgery under hypothermic conditions on them, the team's attention turned to an attempt to identify and isolate a chemical hormone from the blood which could eventually be used to allow safe cooling in a human patient to very low body temperatures, the so-called deep hypothermia, safely, greatly elongating the operating time. Now, at one point, the team thought they had discovered, quote, hibernin, end quote, and even applied for a patent, prepared articles for publication, and got ready to stun the world with their announcement. There was even interest from people in NASA involved in space research, Imagine the benefits of being able to put humans into hibernation for deep space missions. It wasn't until organic chemists from the U.S. Patent Office looked at their work that they realized that the compound that they had isolated was actually a solvent that came from the plastic tubing used in the separation process. Instead of being embarrassed and covering up this error, Bigelow actually published his account in an article in the journal Surgery entitled, quote, Intellectual Humility in Medical Practice and Research, end quote, and tells the tale with great humor in his book, Quote, Cold Hearts, the story of hypothermia and the pacemaker. The era of cardiac surgery using hypothermia lasted from 1954 to 1960 until the introduction of the heart-lung bypass machine made sole use of hypothermia for intracardiac or inside-the-heart operations obsolete due to limited operating time and associated difficulties and complications. So let's take a minute to cover the invention of this machine. This basically takes over the function of the heart and lungs during surgery pumping the blood through the body and oxygenating it while skipping over or bypassing the heart, allowing it to be operated upon. Although the history of its invention is worthy of an entire podcast, 
The credit for its creation and for the first successful open heart procedure using a heart-lung bypass machine is given to Dr. John Gibbon, a surgeon in Philadelphia. The operation occurred on May 6, 1953, and was done to repair an atrial septal defect in an 18-year-old woman. Although this marked the beginning of the heart-lung bypass era of cardiac surgery, the work done by Bigelow and his fellows on hypothermia lived on in a number of ways. By 1960, it was considered safe to combine hypothermia with the bypass pump, directly cooling the blood by using a heat exchanger, which added protection to the organs by reducing oxygen demands. Later, the concept of hypothermia was applied directly to the heart to stop contractions so it could be operated upon. This was called cold cardioplegia, the idea being to infuse a cold solution into the coronary arteries, which are the vessels that feed the heart, which stops it from beating and also protects the cardiac muscle through hypothermia. Now, cardioplegia is an interesting word, cardio meaning heart, and plegia, which comes from the Greek plege, meaning blow or stroke, but in medical use means paralysis. Think paraplegic or quadriplegic, indicating paralysis of parts of the body. Another application of this research is in something called Deep Hypothermic Circulatory Arrest, or DHCA. After the heart-lung bypass machine replaced the need for hypothermia to operate on the heart, the only surgeries that needed hypothermia were ones that involved the blood supply to the brain, and it is used to protect it from injury. So for example, DHCA is used in operations on the aortic arch, which is the big vessel carrying blood from the heart, vessels in the head and neck, and blood vessels in the brain itself. This is done by cooling the body down below 20 degrees and stopping the circulation of the blood and brain function for up to an hour. Now, Dr. Denton Cooley, a famous surgeon that we'll cover later, first used this to protect the brain during his attempt at total resection and replacement of the aortic arch in a patient in 1955. And there was another significant finding that came out of his hypothermia research. In 1949, while working on a dog, its heart stopped and did not respond to massage to start it up again. So Bigelow gave the heart a poke with a metal probe out of desperation, to which the heart responded by contracting. He and his collaborator, Dr. Callahan, another cardiac surgeon, enlisted the electrical engineer Jack Hops from the National Research Council of Canada to pursue this finding further. They realized that an electrical impulse would do the same thing, and the concept of an electrical pacemaker was born. The team developed a working pacemaker to be used on animals undergoing deep hypothermia, as the low temperatures would often stop the heart, and later used at normal temperatures when the heart was artificially stopped. In 1950, at the annual Surgical Congress of the American College of Surgeons, they presented their findings of a film showing a pacemaker in an animal model with no harm to the heart muscle. Dr. Paul Zoll of Boston caught wind of this, and Bigelow and his colleagues shared their findings, and by 1952, Zoll reported successful use of an external pacemaker in two patients with heart block, but the unit was too big to carry around, leaving the patient bedbound. On October 8, 1958, just eight years after their discovery was made public, a team in Sweden implanted the first internal pacemaker in a patient, led by Dr. Aki Senning, mentioned in podcast 33. Bigelow's contribution in the birth of the pacemaker has been recognized internationally, and Jack Hops, the engineer he worked with, went on to be considered one of the fathers of biomedical engineering. Now, interestingly, Dr. Bigelow himself would require a pacemaker later in his life. Now, there are some interesting lessons to be taken from the story of Dr. Bigelow and his search for a safe way to perform open-heart surgery. I saw this term applied to surgeons on Twitter the other day, and I found it very applicable. Bigelow was a triple threat, meaning he made contributions to surgery as a clinician, as a researcher, and as an educator, 
he actually started the cardiovascular training program in Toronto, which was the first of his kind in Canada. He was also a thoughtful surgeon who had great empathy for his patients and wrote about the loneliness and moral responsibility of being on the cutting edge, so to speak, of new operative techniques. In his book that I mentioned earlier, he reflects on the lessons that he learned over the years, and the one he focused the most on was open-mindedness. He talks about the willingness to explore new ideas with the humility of knowing how little may be understood about a subject, and the importance of pursuing these unknowns with persistence and collaboration with other investigators, something we can all learn from. Now, Bigelow's favorite quote, and one he mentions in his book, is worth considering as a final note on this fascinating surgeon. It is credited to Louis Pasteur, but sums up his open-minded approach to research. Quote, chance favors the prepared mind, end quote. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, in honor of Black History Month in the U.S., we'll cover the surgeon Dr. Charles Drew, considered the father of the blood bank, as well as some other interesting and related topics. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.